Escape from Plan A. Hello, it's uh, Teen. This is Escape from Plan A. Um, Saturday evening, it's still, it's kind of like, you know, peak summer. There's still a little bit of sun out and we're all on the East Coast and I'm sitting here with Diana. Diana, how's it going? It's pretty good. How are you? Um, as usual, it's it's um, it's fine here in New York, you know, whatever. And uh, special guest, Emily Dong. Uh, Emily, how are you? I'm good. I'm doing good. It's a hot day in Philadelphia, but um, what's new? <laughs> yeah. Um, so really excited to have you on because um, you wrote an article. Uh, well, actually, you know, before we get to that, do you want to just like tell people a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to say? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I already said I'm in Philadelphia. I just actually moved here from Boston. I was born and raised in Boston, and I went to school in upstate New York. Um, So it's my first time moving down this south, if you could call it that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wrote the article for this organization called the Organization for Positive Peace, and we're affiliated with and trained by and coming out of this other organization based in North Philadelphia in a historic church called the Society Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Um, and just to be clear, the, the article is um, I Want to Be Chinese. We published it as well um, on Plan A Mag, and we'll put the link there. But it was published in several different places, like at, at the Org for Positive Peace on their website, which is where I first saw it, and also at Child Collective, right? I think it was published yeah. there. Yeah. So, yeah, no, sorry, I didn't, I just wanted to say the name of the article. No, yeah, that's great for clarification. And we were talking about this earlier, but I've just been really surprised, but also happy to see people's responses to the article, because when I was writing the article, I was really scared about it. And like, I've talked about many, like, things that people would consider quote unquote radical, whatever that means. Um, but this was probably the thing I was most scared to talk about and write about was saying like, I want to be Chinese. And Diana was saying this too, but to say something like that, it just feels so taboo right now. Um, but I actually think it's pretty deep and I think it's really important and relevant for not just Chinese Americans, but for a lot of non-white people in the U S right now. Um, I feel like our country is at a crossroads and, we can either continue things how they're going with a certain Western way of doing things and the values, and we can talk about those later on, or we can, we have an opportunity to, you know, make a new society. I know that sounds so lofty, but I think it's true. Like change the way things are, like create a new type of humanity, really think about what values we think our society should be based in, how that will like change the way economics are, but most importantly, how it changes how human beings relate to each other. I don't think that sounds odd at all. I think that sounds like what a lot of people are saying right now, right. Um, much, yeah. especially like more than ever. So I feel like half of our podcasts are about that. Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. So just to give a little background on that, I don't want to summarize the article because um, I, I think people should read it um, for themselves. 
Um, I, I came across it because it was, I think Carl Zah had tweeted it and I followed the link. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I remember reading through it like pretty, like just the whole, it's a it's not a short article. Like, you know, it's, it's a fairly long article. <laughs> and um, I remember thinking like, you know what? This is really, this topic for me personally it's not a touchy topic per se. It's just a really big topic. And it's very difficult for me to um, uh, des- describe it or to, or to articulate it because it, there's a lot going on all at the same time. And oh. it's very difficult to articulate it. And as I'm reading this article, I was like, whoever wrote this gets it. I was like, this article is really summarizing for me how I feel, Right. And it was, it's, it, it, for, for me in terms of like trying to, and we've spent so many podcasts trying to talk about it, like the, um, the, the, the difficulty living in America now as a Chinese American and the kinds of, um, the, you know, the kinds of like political pressure you face and the sort of obligations I feel to disavow sides of not just myself but just like disavow ideas like out there in the world (laughs) disavow an entire country out there in the world that i've been to that i have connections with that is not is it's not accurately presented or understood in the u.s at all and then to see the site the psychotic nature of what's going on here and how we demonize and how we choose to demonize uh china in this way um, and all, and just all the excuses that come with it, like, oh, I love the Chinese people, but I just hate their government mm. and all these excuses that they give and all the projection, every terrible thing that we do, it gets projected onto China. You see what I'm saying? Like I, it, once I start talking about it, it, I'm like a fucking freight train. And so when I came across your article, I was like, this is a really thoughtful, uh, well-written summary of what I feel. And so I was curious, like... Because I'm quite a bit older and I wasn't expecting someone, and I, I think you're quite a bit younger than me, <laughs> I was not expecting that the youth would be thinking these things and be able to write about them. So what, I guess my question for you now that I have you on this pod is like, when did you start thinking like this? And when did you feel like you obviously felt some urgency to write this article? When did that how did that come together? I'm super curious about this. Yeah. Well, Diane is also youngish, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I'm like halfway between the two of you. Oh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, first off, I think I've been really lucky in different ways to have had certain people and mentors in my life who have introduced me to certain ideas. If And I I can go into detail about that. And I think another thing is, I mean, those ideas, I think, really have to do with what people call the Black radical tradition. And I think there are a lot of different definitions floating around about what that is. But when I say that, I mean, like, when I was introduced to, the first person I really was introduced to who changed the way I look at the world and see my own self in this world and my responsibility to it was Grace Lee Boggs. and not, I think Grace Lee Boggs is also talked about as someone who's part of the Asian American movement, when really a lot of her life, especially in Detroit, so she was, she started off, she went to college, I think at um, Barnard, 
and then she got a PhD at some place, I think outside Philadelphia, actually. Um, but instead of going into academia, back when she was that age, she was not allowed to go into academia. So she became a librarian. She moved to Chicago. She became involved with um, CLR James, who was uh, a Caribbean scholar um, and also a Trotskyist. And that's when she met Jimmy Boggs, who was an auto worker in Detroit, and he was part of the League of Revolutionary Workers there. She moved there with him. She became involved with the Black community, um, was involved with Malcolm X, and just got to, was basically part of these incredible movements of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and has been a, wit a witness and participant of a lot of the Black freedom struggle. Um, and so she always said in her autobiography, and I read her autobiography with other young Asian Americans um, at my school, Cornell, when I was there. And when, when we read her, it was way different than what we expected because we were Asian American activists like who believed like, oh, our identity is Asian American. We only do things related to Asian Americans and that's our place, blah, blah, blah. But Grace kept saying in her autobiography, autobiography she said, my identity is defined by my commitment to Black freedom, which is the freedom of all humanity. Um, and that's something she emphasized a lot. And she talked about my human identity is not that I'm not white and that I'm not a victim because I am not white. My identity is that I have, I have principles of selflessness, um, of justice for humanity, of compassion, that like my job is to become a more human human being. And I think that was just a totally different way of understanding my own place in the world. Um, that kind of opened can, can, up. Yeah, go can ahead. Can I ask you about that? Yeah. So go ahead. when when you came across this, yeah, did it was it more like a recognition of something that you think you already kind of understood, or was it something new? Was it like, holy shit, I never thought of it that way? Or, uh, that's honestly the golden question. Um, <laughs> I think it was new. Honestly, I think it was really, really new. In some ways, it's not new because, and I mean, this goes into the article too, I want to be Chinese, because I think I was raised a certain way by my parents. I've been really lucky to have like great parents who, great parents and grandparents who I do think raised me with values that I never appreciated. And I think those are civilizational values, ones of like respect for elders and respect for history and wanting to be a part of building the future that's not starting from ground zero, but coming from like a recognition of history and what actually is around us. But I do think it was new in the sense that like in college, I really did believe, I really had this like firm belief that I'm a victim, that like my whole life should be waiting here, waiting to like be given the privileges that white people have. And I also grew up really wanting to be white, like even when I was involved in social justice at Cornell. And it wasn't until I read Grace and then I read Huey P. Newton's autobiography. I started reading Du Bois, James Baldwin, and then also King, lastly King. It's, it's just a different way of looking at the world around us, I guess, the country that but we're born in. Did it, but okay, but it sounds then that it yeah. must have, because you brought up your parents and your grandparents. Yeah. Uh, did it did it mesh? You think in some way with yeah what no. they said, and then if so, how how did that work? How does that interplay? It does. I do think it does. It matters a lot to. It matters a lot not to be white, and it matters a lot to be 
a Chinese American who had parents who for some reason, like, I don't know why, maybe it was the wave of immigration they came on, but that they did, they did not, they did not think they were inferior. Like they, I don't think they were, they think of it in the way I think of it. Like, it's not the same language of talking about it. But well, I, I think, yeah, go ahead, Diana. I think that the thing that strikes me about what Grace Lee Boggs says is that my identity is uh, such and such thing that I do. You know, it's an right. action. It's not a state. And I think the yeah. white definition of identity is very much static, a static yeah. state. And uh, that kind of. <clears throat> it's also reactive. Yeah, yeah, like, reactive. I think this is something Baldwin says. He says it's like whiteness. The creation of whiteness as an identity is not inherent. It's not natural. It doesn't happen because you're born. You come out of someone's womb and you're white. Whiteness was an invention, a historic invention based on someone else's inferiority. And that was black people and then it became the colonized peoples. For as long as you're not colonized, for as long as you're not the darker people, for as long as you're not a black person, then you're not the bottom of society and you're white. But that's not based on anything real it's a complete lie and so you have no future if your identity is completely based on a lie you have no possible future path you can never grow and the society that you create based on whiteness can never grow and i think that's the most devastating thing um and like, i think that I was harder to that. see th- sorry i don't mean it, but i think that was harder to see through before when yeah. there definitely was this like severe this real material uh, advantage that white people had in terms of mm. the their power, their wealth, and their technological development, and all these things, especially in the '60s and '70s, uh, when you know, if you accepted the frame of progress that they, as they described it, you're like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, they're so far ahead in, you know, and I think uh, the, you know, when you say like the um, the lie, I feel like there was a lot of like evidence to back up the lie, even though it was a lie. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it was much harder to see through that. And I'm wondering if now given, um, yeah. and see, these are difficult questions for me because like <laughs> it, they really start poking up against things that are taboo, you know, but I have to say, like, is there a de- <laughs> yeah, well, is there a degree to which now that I think, and this is the way I've framed it sometimes, is like, I think in many ways, China as, you know, everyone thinks of it as the number two power or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, I think of it as, and I, you know, I was there for like a month last year. Mm-hmm. And I think that without doubt, anyone who steps foot inside China now, coming from America, you will absolutely feel that China is posing a material threat to white supremacy, right? Like, yeah. no longer can you say like, yeah. oh, these other people in the world don't know how to, you know, build a civilization, build technology, build civilization or whatever. I mean, that's not even a question anymore. But I think that now what I'm seeing is there is a concession to that. Yeah. That, you know, we can no longer just sort of like, uh, we being in the West, pretend that China's this, right. back, you know, backwards yeah. uh, place or whatever. Mm-hmm. However, I think now what we're doing is saying, okay, you may present a material threat 
to white a challenge to white supremacy, but you're not presenting a moral threat to mm. white to white supremacy. White people still need to be on top. Mm. And I this idea I think has been particularly bothersome for me. And I've seen Asian American scholars like you know, people who are Asian American studies professors yeah, yeah. and, you know, backing that idea up, right. you know, and, and, um, and we talked about, um, Diana, you remember, you know, the tweet I'm talking about, the one, um, oh, where yeah. Viet Thanh Nguyen was like, you know, I see this all the time. I'm not trying to single him out, but it, this was the it's purest very common. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. That he was in a way happy to see the, the, you know, the U.S. hegemony or, or I think he called it U.S. hegemony around the world uh, fading. But his he has a sort of trepidation about that because it'll just be filled up by China, which is just as bad or worse. And I felt like this is that's pure yellow peril. I think we're, once I saw that, I was like our best Asian-American minds are the intellectual like elite of Asian-Americans are just out on Twitter spewing yellow peril. And I was like, it's fucked. We're fucked if this is going to be the case. So I was I like, we got to do everything we can to amplify people who have different points of view. That's why I was like, we got to publish this article. Yeah. I personally think that it's not even China alone that is posing the threat to Western civilization or white supremacy. It's the rise of a lot of Asian countries together. And you see, you know, like uh, Korea's economy, a lot of it was fueled by investment from China or just by people buying consumer goods, um, like Korean consumer goods in China. Uh, You know, Japan's for a while been up there. But I think there's somebody had written something that said basically if one country... In Asia, if one yellow country like Japan uh, rises up on its own, it will be knocked down right away. But the rise of basically yellow powers all over the world, you know, that entire region uh, makes it uh, combined with the decline of all the Western powers, all the white powers at the same time, makes it impossible to just kind of uh, destroy one enemy as a, the yellow peril mm. anymore. Yeah. And I, I think there's a corollary to that to, to an extent. I think when you say that it's a broad, Diana, when you say it's like, it's broader than just China, it's like sort of Asia as a whole. I mean, yes, I think I agree with that on the corollary. I think with respect to this notion of like this white sensitivity to challenging white power or white supremacy, I think it's pretty, it's very concentrated in the Anglo countries. This is, I don't know if that's totally true, but I think it it is really much, it it is very much the five eyes countries, right? Like, yeah, um, they were, mm -hmm. yeah, they were the original countries that did the Chinese exclusion 150 years ago. Yeah. And they're by far like the most rabidly Sinophobic and Russophobic too, at the same time. Like they're kind of scared of China and Russia at the same time. And, um, and I, I think like Amer- you know, America's the ringleader here, but like every time we do something or say something, I mean, pretty much right away, even though it's Trump, even though Canada purports to hate Trump, they they'll, they'll just follow right along, you know. And uh, so will Australia. Australia is probably the most rabidly xenophobic country in the world right now, um, which and they also happen to be the one that has has like by far the most economic reliance on China. Yeah. 
And I wonder, like, I guess the question, okay, that's a big framing of the question. I want to kind of bring it back to what you were talking about, Emily, sorry, is um, the effects that all of this has. This is real. my real interest. The effects that this has on Asian people in America and how do you respond to it? Because I was reading this article saying, thinking, and I've been thinking about this for a while. I was like, I don't think there is any other response to this except for what you're talking about here. Like, I think there has to be, um, I do think that there has to be embracing of black radical traditions. And we ourselves yeah. at, you know, here, I think we've, I don't think I grew up that way. I don't think I was taught that way. I was not educated in college to be like that. I don't have black radical friends until I got on the internet and started thinking through it myself. Um, and I feel like we've kind of arrived at similar conclusions that a lot of people, I mean, not a lot, but like a lot of people online and Diana and I know a lot of them mm -hmm. have arrived at similar things. And when we saw your article, we're like, this makes a lot of sense. I think it makes, it just makes a lot of sense, you know? Um, yeah, because there's a difference between, because here's the thing, there's a difference between Chinese pride in the sense of like, oh, Chinese Americans like in dim sum or something like, oh, I eat dim sum every Sunday. And like, I like. I know how to make gongbao jijing on my own stove or something. But that's different from that's different from understanding like it's different than saying like understanding the traditions, like the civilizational traditions. The the key thing of like I do not look west for authority. I do not think humanity began in Europe. I don't think it's going to end in Europe. I think whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia, that the darker peoples of the world, like they invented gunpowder before like Europe even knew how to till wheat. You know, it's it's a different way of understanding, I think, the humanity's history. And also the the more most important thing is it asks, it shows you a different future too. Like you're not waiting for Europe or America to decide what's next. You know that actually like what has to happen is I mean for the most part, I think in a lot of Western countries, there's not a moral foundation. Like there's a, in a, a lot of ways, there's a moral emptiness. Um, and there's just no way you can just continue the way things have been. Like something has to change. It has to be something much deeper than just like, we're going to reform a few pieces of legislation or we're going to elect a new president or we're going to like, whatever. Like, you know? Right. I think that you hit upon a really, really interesting point, which is that whiteness has no moral core. It's emptiness. And actually, like whiteness is defined by what it is not, you know, through uh, successive legislatures, successive court decisions that define what is not white. So like inherently, there is nothing at the core of whiteness. Right. There is no morality, no ethics and uh, nothing beyond the current state of what it is and it just wants to keep at that state as if there is no future as if there is no past you know there's also like a complete lack of historical memory yeah. because if there is one well that memory uh does not have whiteness in it yeah and I think it, going back to team's question which I think is the central question which is like which is how does how does all this impact? But then also, what is the role of Asian Americans then? Um, like you can say, okay, Asia is rising, 
China is presenting a very real challenge to white supremacy on a global scale. Like, I do think the thing I always appreciate, I mean, I appreciate right now of everything is that I think you are getting a really strong sense from a place like China where they don't, they see the U.S. as the bully it is. Um, and they are trying to, in some ways, create a very different way of being, like not just a different way of governing people, but it's a different way of like raising people. It's a different way of existing. Um, it's a different way of creating relationships among people in your own country, but also with people around the world. Yeah, you're talking about deep cultural foundations. Right. Like, like fundamentally, it is like China, the Asia, they are different civilizations from white civilizations. So they have like a deep, deep cultural differences that are very intangible, but they're exactly how you describe what you describe, you know. Uh, different ways of solving problems, of looking at connections, family, relationships, just building. It, it's basically like a building's foundation and structure, you know, underneath what it yeah. looks like on the interior is completely different. Um, and I, I was going to say something, but I totally <laughs> forgot. Yeah. I think <laughs> oh, sorry. So sorry. I was going to say, um, I think that's why you have tolerance here for these superficial cultural artifacts, you know, like I can appreciate Chinese food and maybe, you know, Din Li Jing music, you know, her songs. But I if I say I value, you know, the core Chinese principles or ideologies that's dangerous because that's the threat to white supremacy. Yeah, I was also yeah. going to... Oh, go ahead, Teen. No, 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 please go ahead. I was going to say, and I think this goes back to the reason why in my article too, and bringing it back also to something Teen said, um, this thing about moral and the cultural or civilizational foundation that I think is really important but it's almost hard for like me to understand completely. I think it has always been people like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, or Du Bois or Baldwin, people who I think in particular it has been Black people in America who have been able to see the importance of a moral foundation of a society and what the lack of morals does to people. And... And I think speaking from personal experience and also the motivation behind writing the articles that I don't think I was able to fully appreciate the civilization that gave birth to me and how important it would be for me to be Chinese um, and to know these values if I ever wanted to be part of making a new world until I found the Black radical tradition, until I read someone like Huey P. Newton who went to China and said, described like way better than I honestly ever, ever could talking about the cultural difference and what that does to you. Like he says, he was like, for the first time when I went to China, that's when I felt free. Um, How did it make you feel to read that? 
I was shocked. Like I was so shocked because we're also so used to people talking about like black people versus Chinese people. And like, there's obviously reasons why, but I think the possibility of unity um, was really moving to me. And yeah, honestly, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever would have, because after I had read Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton, I went back to China because my grandparents are there and they raised me. And um, my grandma, she was having she was having health problems, and I was going back to see her for the last time before she passed. And I had always gone back to China so many times, like every summer going back by myself. Like I had been there, spent a lot of time. I had never seen China so clearly until after I'd read that by Huey P. Newton. The way you feel, it's so hard to describe, the way you just feel different. Um, you don't feel defined by guilt. You don't feel defined by shame. You don't, be feel, you don't feel defined by inferiority. You're a human being, if that makes sense. I want to ask you about that. Because yeah, exactly. um, I have a, I, this is something that I, I think about a lot is, do you think what you're describing, you're saying that um, it's a little bit beyond description, right? This is, this is something very foundational this difference that you felt in going and relating to people in China versus here. My question is, and when I say my question is something that I think about myself is, is that, does that say more about China or does that say more about America? Because where I come out on that right now, I think it says more about America because I found that the, that deep shift in how people relate and the, what you say, the lat, the, 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 how a lot of things go away, um, notions of um, dominance or inferiority or subject, you know, being yeah. submissive to this, whatever. Um, I get frustrated with a lot of way Asian Americans talk about it because they they talk about it just like, oh, well, see, I go to China and I look Chinese oh, and therefore yeah. now I'm like a white person would feel in America. You know, like <laughs> to me, that's not, it's not really capturing it at all. You know, and I think that, that is what how, that's where the discussion about it remains is oh if an asian american goes back to their homeland in asia that they suddenly feel what it's like to be um you know what it's like to be a white person in america and um like for example i think uh, when um what's his name bong bong jun ho when he oh. won the oscar like a lot of i've i heard some asian americans talking about being in his presence it was kind of like oh my god he's like this korean man but he's not you know he 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 does he doesn't have you know he's not bound by you know the asian american self-loathing and all that stuff fine but i guess what i'm saying is having i didn't i haven't traveled a ton but i used i used to travel quite a bit and i found that it didn't really matter where I was so long as I was like not in America or Canada or part of the quote new world. Like if I went to a place that had a long history, if I went to Italy, for example, uh, or any other part of Asia or Europe or whatever, where there were a lot of people that have lived there continuously for a long time and had a deep culture that this foundational shift kind of occurred there too. Even though I was just a, as much, even more a fish out of water, say in Italy than I was in, America or China, but I still felt it there. And I wonder 
Have you ever thought about that? Because I, I think about that all the time. And, I, and I've, I've come down on the side that it's really about what's missing in America much more so than what it's specifically present in a country like China or in a country like um, you know, like any any given Russia or something like that. I, I feel it has to do with the depth of the the like the how much their culture has um, developed. Whereas yeah. I think in America we just don't, haven't had enough time. I don't know what it is, or maybe we just got to capitalism too quick or something. Yeah. You know, like something didn't take hold here. And there's a missingness in America. That's what I feel when I leave. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about or wondered about that. Because I think framing it that way makes me feel like that's why I think I can, when I read like black writers in America, I feel like that's what they're writing and saying about America is the kind of thing that would need to take hold in mm -hmm. order for that missingness to go away. Yeah. No, I think Do you're know what right. I mean? Yeah. For the way you're talking about that there's, it just shows you the missingness. Um, I think that's true. And, but then I think the question becomes like, it becomes how and what are you identifying as what's missing? And I've always, especially, re I think recently I, I felt that what's missing is this might sound vague, but I just think something very like raw and human. Um, like the thing I love, and this is just, I mean, this is also just the person, like a very personal thing, but what I really miss when I come back to the US um, is just the way that like even people are rude to you on the bus in China. Like you are all just, you're one big family. Like, you're not this or that you're just on a bus with other people and people expect you to get up when an old person gets on um because they're gonna take your seat and people fight each other fight each other like fight almost like too politely fight each other saying like you should sit down um i don't know like I, yeah, I, I remember there was uh, yeah, I, I remember there was a time I was in Japan, uh, and I feel this in Japan too. Mm -hmm. I feel, I think someone had I, I forgot who it was exactly, but someone had described this being the difference between what they call a high context culture and a low context oh. culture, <laughs> saying that Japan was an extremely Japan and China would be examples of extremely high context cultures, whereas the U.S. and Canada and Australia would be you know very very yeah. low context. And I kind of immediately understood what they meant by that. But yeah, I, I, I remember like in Japan, I saw, um, you know, whatever, let, let's not even talk about politics for the moment, but just how people relate uh, that there was this old, I remember I got up every morning and I would go to the same, sub, the same train station to get to where I wanted to go. And there was an old woman this one morning uh, who needed assistance and these two employees at this like sort of like not very central subway station would like help her up there and then they would they they put her like at a specific part of the train mm. and then like one of them call, like used this telephone and then said something into the train and when the train came there were like two more people like in the subway train to get her on yeah. <laughs> to like watch her and then we got on and then when they got to the station that she was supposed to get off at 
there were two people waiting for her at that train station to take her off. And I was like, this could not happen. Like these little things. Yeah. I know they can't normal. happen here. It's not a dramatic yeah. show or anything. It's just, it's no. just normal. It no one made a show like- of it at all. It sounds like what you're saying is that there's just more human connection yeah. mm-hmm. in these high context countries, right? And that makes sense because, you know, like white countries, capitalist countries, they're low context on purpose because if you have high context, then you have to see the people. But white supremacy and capitalism were created to extract value, extract labor from people colonize people and colonize lands yeah and colonize your time and attention uh-huh and yeah. well i mean that's part of labor yeah right so the whole purpose is to create this extractive uh system and uh basically in that system some people gain material wealth a few people gain that but everybody loses the human yeah. connections because the the value of humans is lost, yeah. uh, and perf- and um, commodities are valued way too high. You know, like they're fetishized. That's what Marx said, I guess. Yeah, and I think what Teen said earlier about when you read black writers, like when you read someone like Paul Robeson, or you read someone like Baldwin, um, or even I think when you listen to music, like. When you listen to Paul Robeson sing, it is, you feel what's missing. It's that hum- there's a humanity. Um, that yeah, and, yeah. And, and Black American culture specifically, they, they had to have that to survive. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they, <clears throat> um, like they needed to consider everybody with one drop of blo- Black blood as family so that everybody could help take care of each other as a community you know and like they used those human connections and those emotional connections like through song and through dancing and just like to just to they had to fight for every last ounce of that humanity because it was constantly being taken away from them so just that that those human connections that richness that you're talking about that was radical uh act you know protest that was the only the one way in which they empowered themselves to fucking survive and i think what i really wanted and still want for especially young asian americans is to not look at whether it's white people in college or like white CEOs or just white people on the street, white people in their schools, look at that and like who's on their TVs and say, man, if only one day I'm lucky enough to be that white person or to have whiteness, but instead to look at everything you just said, Diana, and say like, this is what I want to be more human. I want to be part of creating an America that is more human and takes like exactly appreciates, but also like spreads and is built on a humanity that you can see in black history, but also like exactly what people like Du Bois and Baldwin were explicitly saying, like America has got to change. And King was saying like, 
there has to be a revolution of values. Like you have to see the black radical tradition as like the American tradition. Like what would it mean for America if that is what America saw as its great inheritance? Um, Like, I think that's a totally different way of seeing things. And I mean, I think personally for me, it was a huge shift. Um, Like it was a huge psychological shift, but also ideological shift, like a spiritual shift, but also like a mental shift in some ways. So instead of like, it was a huge unlearning thing too, like instead of looking West, instead of looking up at white people, instead saying like, actually, I think whiteness is a trap. And I think if anything, I have so much to show white America what they're missing. Like I look at depressed white people, you see depressed people like you. It's like, man, none of us should be depressed in the prime of our lives. Like this society can be so much better. It can treat people so much better if only we, instead of demonizing, trying to like colonize, trying to dominate civilizations in the East, places like Africa, instead like seeing how much there is to learn and emulate from Black America, from China, from other places, seeing places as places to learn from instead of seeing them as like enemies, as places to like squash so you can like survive for a few another years or something. My question is, can America change? <laughs> is that even possible? I mean, it's uh... I, I don't think, I think the answer is yes, but I, I think <laughs> in a very pessimistic way that we're not there yet. Like, I mean, just take the case of China, like, I think I think a big part of why and, I, and I've thought about this for so long because I remember this feeling I can't describe it like I can't describe it either. I don't even know if it's the same feeling, but it is a feeling that I got just leaving America. I remember the first time I felt this when I used to go to Taiwan when I was a kid. I felt it actually when I used to travel to Europe uh, when I first started going to Europe. And I even noticed it there when I didn't expect to. Right. And I think something I, I mean, I'm not trying to like simp- oversimplify mm. this, but I think one thing that did I did notice is that for a lot of countries, like they really had a reckoning uh, during World War II, that a lot of countries really had to reckon with like mass trauma and just awful, awful shit in World War II. Mm. And of course, China, Russia, Europe, uh, chief among them. Right. But it didn't really happen to America. Like we like to think of ourselves as like the heroes of World War II, but like we weren't really that central. Um, we kind of came in with like everyone was spent and, uh, you know, our, our, you know, the mainland was never attacked. We never really suffered horrendously. And we don't have like a national trauma around that. Right. Whereas I, I started thinking like what I see in other countries is like there is a certain like sanctity to their history, especially their modern history. And it created like, for example, like uh, even in, in, in the UK, I like to think about things like the UK because the UK is so close to America. But on the other hand, I think they still have something that we don't have, mm. uh, even if just a shade more. <laughs> and I think part of that, for example, is their national health services, which came out of world war two, mm. right. To take care of all the, I mean, j- just because people were, 
they, they, the society couldn't move forward. And even in America, people have talked about with COVID, maybe we will finally come around to like caring enough about other people to say, hey, we need a society, we need to have healthcare, you know, something like that. And I do think like it takes something like COVID to talk about something like universal healthcare. And so I'm wondering, and that's just a small thing. Like, you know, what you're talking about, Emily, is much bigger than just one policy. But I'm wondering, like, is there then this need for there to be some sort of collective confrontation with reality? Because I think that's the thing that really is missing in America is like being reined in by reality. Well, there's no I think, shame. You know, we're you, so fucking deluded. It's insane. You, you talk about um, other countries having national shame team. You said that before. And like right. America yeah. just has no ideation of itself as a nation anytime it fucks up. You know, there's no national shame. I think there maybe the US needs like their own hundred years of humiliation. <laughs> See, that's what I'm worried about. That's that's what I'm getting to, Diana, is do we need our the American century of humiliation? Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe like and a even decade. then I don't know. <laughs> maybe a decade would be enough, you know. <laughs> well, we had we've had a decade of it. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think All right. But even if you went with world say like we go with what you're saying, Tina, about World War Two and the World Wars, like I, I think, but then take the Vietnam War or the Korean War. And those are very clear cases where America was barbaric and how they killed so many innocent people. Um, started these, like, flew and swam all across, like, halfway around the world. Yeah, it, was, it was genocidal. Yeah. It was absolutely genocidal. And yeah. But I think the difference is it doesn't matter how many bombings or wars America has done, like, un, what's the word? Like, unprovoked. Um, they just did it. I, I don't think it's necessarily about that, but it does go back to the delusion thing of, like, what would it take to show America its conscience? Because I think that's that was the power... That was the power, I think, of the civil rights movement, is, like... You had this movement that, like, uh, because we are so deluded. We're deluded by the media. We're deluded by our own education system. We're deluded by our own parents most of the time. It's just, like, generation after generation. Like, it does take a certain consciousness in the movement that is conscious to hold up a mirror to America and say, like, look, this is what you are. But then it goes back to, like, it goes back to how do you raise conscious individuals? And I know Diana and I talked earlier a little about a, a little bit about like Diana believes that Gen Z is like more conscious than us or something. I think you said that. Um, I don't know if you still stand by that. But. Well, I think it's more uh, it's more um, political. Mm. I think that there's a certain population that is more conscious. And has a more of a conscience and is more ready ready to speak out about that. Like more but I also yes, and but more there's, hopeless. There's also another hopeless. side of that that went full Nazi like real quick. Mm. Right. So it's a yeah. it's a bifurcation. Some some somewhere That's that true. happened. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think the I think Americans are deluded. I think though I think that what Americans are really deluded about is how deprived we are. Mm, yes, like, I don't yes. I don't think we really understand how deprived yeah. we are as people. 
And I think that's the thing that we need to open our eyes to. Um, yeah, is... it's not for the rest of the world, for ourselves. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right, it's a yeah. self-imposed deprivation too. I mean, I guess that's exactly what you're saying. But like, Emily, when I read your article, and like, I read it independent of team, <laughs> but I had the same reaction. I was like, holy shit, like this is exactly what I... It's not even what I've been consciously thinking or uh, feeling, but after I read your article, I just felt such a release, mm. you know? It was like, um, I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but I will say that, like, you both, you've, you didn't, like, I was born in China, yeah. you know, and I have living memory of existing outside of the u.s for and how i felt outside of the u.s um i was a totally different person and having lived here for the last you know almost 30 years um i think that being in the u.s was just uh endless trauma it's like an assault on your person. And I don't know if it's just race. Like that has a big part of it. You know, xenophobia has a big part of it. But I think, you know, everything you're talking about, it's just like, it's not how we're supposed to live. Yeah. And I feel like I've been holding in this uh, feeling of like, you know, just... When you said, um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe this. <laughs> but I think something you said before, earlier on the podcast, was um, you kind of have to uh, push a part of yourself away. I, I really agree with that. Or maybe you said, like, it's not of yourself. But I think it is, like, a part of yourself. You have to disavow. You have to disavow your Chineseness. Yeah. And that's wrong like that makes you not a full person and to be a part of American society you have to disavow a part of yourself you have to gouge out you know a pound of flesh to even exist and I think that before reading your article I was I was of the opinion that everybody else was okay with this and I felt like I was forcing myself to do this every day to just to just to walk around outside, you know, and then I read it and I was like, oh, my God, somebody else feels the same bullshit. Uh, and it made me it made me feel much safer to be my full yeah. self. And it made me feel more empowered to yeah. be how I was before all of that shit. Yeah, and and I I I totally I really really resonate with what you're saying about feeling empowered. There's something so freeing about because when you squash, like in your language, when you squash that Chinese part of yourself, like basically who you are, what makes you human, what makes you whole. Um, and also what fills like, I mean, it runs through your blood, but it also fills your soul. Like 
is part of your spirit and your sense of being and how you like how you communicate with other people on like an energy level I think it it's meant to make you it, it's meant to make you like only live to want to be white or aspire towards whiteness but then when you feel free to say like actually I don't want to be white and I actually think white supremacy and whiteness is the very trap that is holding America and so many poor young people like back it's really freeing because I think it empowers you to also understand other people like for me the big difference was when I realized that I could see through people much easier after doing that especially white people and no matter how racist or how petty how demeaning they are to me how I know they think I'm this or that I can see through that because I know who I am I know where I come from I know what I stand by and I know what I want for the world but do you do you know the country you wake up to do you know Mm -hmm. who you are I don't think you know who you are it's a total shift in status because when you see yourself as the victim of this big bully um you have your 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 lower status but when you realize there's a better alternative that that's you that's your civilization you know you step off you step the fuck off that sinking boat onto a different boat a better boat onto a fucking <laughs> yacht we have a fucking yacht <laughs> right i think that's another thing that i like about um what you said is you, you didn't say, I don't want to be white. You said, I want to be Chinese. Really? That's fundamentally different because it's positive. It's forward thinking. It suggests a better future. You know, it's it's not just complaining about what isn't. It's giving everybody a positive road forward. I think that's something that's also missing in Asia, for yeah. Asian America, too. And I also think this is like the topic of all Asian American studies too is the question of like Asian America, is it a hyphen? Are you living on a hyphen? Are you like this or that? Are you both? And it's like, I want to be Chinese, but I know America is my country. Like I was born here. This is my place. And I think it can be so much better, but it can't be better with people not wanting to be Chinese. Um, like, I don't know, it was a huge, it was a really deep thing. It was a really deep thing for me to realize that if America ever wants to be whole again, if it wants to actually be just, um, for there to be no poverty, for there to be no, like, violence of war, for there to be, like, you know, if there's ever to be a possibility even of unity, among different races of different countries in this whole world, then it has to be like, then especially young Asian Americans, they have to like, they cannot look West. They cannot be kneeling, waiting for one day, like some white guy to be like, okay, you get to join the white club today. Well, I think, so you said, if they ever want to be just again, they were never just the question is, can they be just ever? Right. 
and they need to like their whole system was founded and built and sustained on injustice so for them to ever want to be for them to even attain any semblance of justice they have to look somewhere else because it ain't here and it never was i i think here okay so <laughs> i i think that this this gets to really this is where things get can get stuck a bit is is when we start talking about the culture because the whatever future there is for america whether it's a, a good one or a, or a, perhaps a, a very horrible one um the future of America is not going to be defined by Chinese culture, right? right? We know that. And uh, so the question of, okay, so what, what of then of Chinese Americans? And, you know, uh, it got me thinking about, well, there was this like tweet storm that happened with uh, my favorite guy, Viet Thanh Nguyen, where uh, a white guy in Vietnam had said, you know, as a as a white guy who's lived in Vietnam for 12 years, I got to say that listening to you blabber on on Twitter makes me think like you don't really know your own culture very well. Mm. And that just shook him to his core. Like he he just absolutely, I mean, two sentences and he was just, wow. I mean, he like had a nervous breakdown basically online. And I think that was very instructive because I do think that that is – you know, when you say all Asian American studies are like, are you, what are you a hyphen or whatever? I mean, I don't know if those are real questions in the sense of like that they would have a meaningful real world answer, but they do, I think, map to certain like psychological conundrums for Asian Americans because we're basically American. We're basically as culturally wiped as other Americans, (laughs) except for like, honestly, very tenuous connections through our parents or through our very, very early childhoods or whatever, excluding, this is ex- excluding, of course, people who were like, you know, came over later, like yeah. they were educated in, in China or whatever. But I do think that at some point, and this is, I'm coming around to this thinking now is for me, the question isn't very much cultural. This is why I say like, it doesn't really matter to me whether I'm in China or whether I'm in Italy or wherever, um, India, you feel similar kinds of notions is that, you know, I think that we're the, the poverty of America is has is universal in a way. There's a universal aspect to it, meaning that any human being would find this poverty here. Like any human being could understand this. And somehow Americans are on balance, like for a while there, deprived enough or deluded enough or ideological enough to have been so alienated from their own basic human sense of whatever connectedness or decency or, you know, uh, fam, you know, familial bonds, whatever that, uh, we almost forgot it. But I think like, I guess what I'm saying is the thing that America is missing can be benchmarked against just people. It doesn't have to be benchmarked against any particular culture. Right. I, th- um, I think that's where... Does the, that make sense? I think that's where the black radical tradition comes in. Or just right, to, right, right. Because, you know, like, they didn't even choose... They didn't choose at all to be here. At all. Right. You know? And yet they have been able to create the humanity and 
Um, well, I guess it's just like radical self-love, you know? It's not necessarily about Chinese culture or African culture. It's about it's about your wholeness of the wholeness of yourself as a human being. I think I think in, it's also just about basic survival. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's you know that's it, what it takes survive. to survive. That's yeah, how you relying survive. on family, relying on you know, yeah, yeah. It's like actually, aid. it's it's valuing it's valuing people. It's telling it's um standing up against this culture that inherently devalues people and saying no, I'm gonna fucking value myself and my people. Fuck you. I think that's the psychological thing that you're talking about. And I, yeah, I think and that's see, what everyone needs here. You, I mean, you see it play out in Asia. Like, I think Asian Americans are, are very interesting. Like, I think we're very interesting in a way because we, we are kind of a microcosm for the rest of America. And you see it. You see that there is this white aspirate. Like, I think sometimes I, I feel like I overuse the, ter- overuse the term white, but it's a good stand-in, like white aspirational attitudes of uh of say upper middle class or upper middle class aspiring asian americans um not to demonize them i'm just saying this is part of being american that with that comes a sort of class condescension and and attitude where you know all of the problems all of the social problems all of the anti-blackness in the asian community all of the um uh, you know, misogyny and all of the vice and criminality exists in immigrant, poor immigrant communities. And it is our, you know, our obligation uh, to rise above those conditions through going to a really good college and getting a really good job at a management consulting firm or whatever to rise out of that. And, you know, I think that uh, that attitude is something that I think needs to change among Asian Americans is the uh, tendency to project all of the, you know, you know, all of our problems like onto the most vulnerable communities in that sense. You know, I think I've seen that a lot in Asian Americans and I see it in America, generally speaking, you know, and I think to some extent that's a small thing, but that's also an important thing I think is to like not scapegoat the poor and vulnerable <laughs> any more than we already do. And to try and reverse that a little bit. I think, I think we do that a shitload as, as Asians. That's something that really bothered me from day one, Diana and Emily is, is how a lot of the people who rep, you know, uh, deem themselves to be representatives of the Asian American community at large, as if there were such a thing, tend to do that. They tend to, um, they tend to, I think Ron Kim calls it, you know, the criminalization of poverty. And uh, it's just a really easy place to dump all of our class guilt, you know, onto um, immigrant communities. And we see immigrants, for example, being closer to the homeland, like recent yeah. immigrants from China to us, they bring with them their criminality and their backwards ways yeah. is how we see it. And so the communities in which they come to America and live in like in a place like Flushing or something or Chinatown, 
is going to be just like the, you know, the, the old racist tropes were back in the 19th century. They still exist today. And we as Asian Americans who've been here our whole lives or vast majority of our lives, I think tend to really quickly internalize those attitudes without even knowing it. Even when our job, our very existence is to explain these things to people because we're like represent, you know, we're race representatives. We still engage in it. It's such a hard thing to let go of. And I think that the sinophobia is part and parcel to that, that, you know, there's, there's just this fundamental like view of like class ascension in America as a sort of moral cleansing or something like rich people are just better. Educated people are just better. They're better people. They're more, you know, and it's oftentimes it's completely the opposite. So, uh, I don't know. I took us on a tangent here. Sorry, Diana. Can you bring us back? I- <laughs> no, I, I was just listening. <laughs> it was like I was listening this- to a great album, you know. Oh. <laughs> I'm just no. like, just go, man. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, this was this was you know tangent. That was a tangent off of what Emily was saying was, and because I think this is the that's the big question for me is what is the role of the Asian American here? And I think part of it is like to get our own personal views straight. Like I I think we have very toxic views personally, attitudes, class, classist attitudes, racist attitudes towards ourselves. Like let's not even talk about anti-blackness yet. Let's talk about how we feel about ourselves, our own people, so to speak. Like we clean that up. You can't fix your anti-blackness or whatever unless you fix that up. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so um, I think the role, f- if 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 that's the question that we're trying to tackle, is like how do we fix ourselves <laughs> as people? <laughs> you know, because I think a lot of us uh, are pretty. You know, I think we've dr- drank a lot of the Kool Aid, and we need to find an antidote to it. And I think more and more people are realizing that whatever it is that we took is pretty poisonous. And, and I, I don't even think that's very controversial anymore. I think that's out in the open. I don't, like as far as taboo ideas go, I think that idea right now, if it's taboo, it's mostly taboo among us as Asians. I don't think the outside world would view that as taboo anymore because they know it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we know it yet, but the rest of the world, if we were to come out and say it, I think the rest of America would be like, hey, <laughs> we agree, you know, um, or at least a significant portion of, of – um, of America, of all different races. So that's where I stand. I think we should, we need to fix ourselves before we think of our larger role um, in, you know, in the broader society. Well, I, don't, I don't know team, if we're ready. You, uh, I think we were talking about some article that some Asian American wrote about, you know, like if an uh, immigrant's restaurant burns up, you know, just let it burn if it's, for oh that was her own restaurant yeah oh, she was yeah, talking about her parents right. her parents restaurant right yeah. and you were saying that it sounded like in her writing it sounded like she was trying to talk to herself even though she was um you know the audience was supposed to be other asians but it just sounded like an internal monologue right i think so yeah, uh, yeah i think she was trying to convince herself that what happened was okay yeah and you I, know and i think part of her felt it probably wasn't okay that her parents business was destroyed mm-hmm. and you know, i think that's and uh how do you 
that's like a very i don't know if it's an american thing or not it seems to me like it is but it's like um anytime some we're uncomfortable with something internally we have to externalize it onto somebody else usually somebody less powerful right and in the american political theater that's china that's you know palestine or whatever but for individual asian americans especially those in the media class it seems like they do that to members of their our own community right so that's what their parents are for and they're creating that same dynamic that america has with china only now it's um this asian media person with their parents or with poor asian communities or immigrant asian communities so it's kind of i think that if america has to reckon with their shadow self we as asian americans have to stop blaming other people and uh reckon with our own internal issues yeah personal issues yeah. right like yeah. i think i think a lot of times like you know with the the one of the cops total in the um in the George Floyd video, being an Asian American guy. You know, I think a lot of Asian American liberals were very quick to say the right thing. I mean, they did say the right thing, which is, that's awful. That's horrendous, right? But you know, I, I the way I interpret it is like, well, you're just sort of like pronouncing your own innocence, your own personal innocence. Right. It was a lot of East right. Asians, too, that were hammering yeah. on this Hmong guy. And right. I was talking to Fan, and she was saying every time she tries to talk about anti-Asian racism, like an East Asian guy will chew her out and call her anti-Black for it. And it's like, okay, you're as as a asian american i guess you're saying the right thing but the action that you're taking is you're an east asian man shutting down a southeast asian woman yeah and 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 all in the name i think of personal exoneration because what they're seeking is exoneration Mm -hmm. while claiming what they're doing is accepting responsibility they're not they're not really claiming responsibility. They're not really exploring the responsibility. They're not exploring the role of Asian Americans here. Yeah. You know, they're just saying like, okay, that guy looks like me, but that's not me. And, uh, oh, we got a lot of problems. And uh, talk to that guy. Talk to his family. I, I think they owe you an explanation. You know, And I'm like, this is personal exoneration. That's an American and, quality uh, too, I think, is not yeah. taking responsibility and pushing the kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's a form of um, you know, like uh, you know, like Germany's response to World War II um was a lot better than Japan's, and I think a lot of that is because Japan is like the junior varsity of America. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard it like that. <laughs> um I I want to bring it back to the question again of which sort of began this and also you brought up again Tina of what is the role of Asian Americans right now um both not just like in America but if America is an important I mean it's an whether we like it or not it has been an important and active force in the world almost always for bad um 
But yeah, what is the role of Asian Americans? Um, because, I mean, China is doing its thing. Um, I mean, I think the big moral question of the next however many decades, I would say 50, but now it looks like the next five. Yeah. I think the big question, the big moral question or the big question, the big capital Q question is how evil will America get to preserve its right. power? Yeah. You know, because I think what we're seeing now, it's much worse than we imagined. And uh, we're willing to do stuff to our to our own people, so to speak, like that. Yeah, you know, we would obviously do this to foreign people, especially foreign people in a poor country. But we never thought we would do it to ourselves, and we're doing it to ourselves. And uh, I think the big question is how much, like, will we sign a suicide pact with every other? You know, like, will we force the world to commit suicide? You know, and we have that power. Uh, and I, I don't know if people have regular people in America, I think it's unfair to ask us to live up to that reality because we are just people. But like that is the, that if there is ex American exceptionalism to being a person, it is exceptional that we live in a country where like Broward County in Florida, you know, many years, many election cycles in a row, the people of Broward County, Florida have tipped the scales of like how the, how the future of humanity is going to play out. You know, because the fucking elections come down to them or whatever. Like, Americans are, like, way too powerful and we really don't have the worldliness and the responsibility as human beings to really, like, deal with that power, you know? And I think as the role of uh, Asian Americans should probably be the same as the role of any other American. And I think we need to have really fucking high standards. Well, I you know? think and that if enough middle class white men are affected things will change you know you talk about oh now we're doing the things that we did in other countries to ourselves but we've been doing that for mm -hmm. our entire history only it's you know like militarized policing on um black and brown communities or i i personally think that rape culture uh that affects american women here that was brought over by all of the rape and violation that happened in overseas yeah. wars, especially in Asia, right? Like people talk about uh, Asian yellow fever as a commodity fetishization. That's exactly what I think happened in like starting from the 80s onward is just um, this like basically this like violence against women was sexualized and commoditized that's when it started you know after after vietnam basically but i mean we've been doing that to all these vulnerable populations and now we're seeing it's affecting middle class dudes it's affecting like even you know the tech the tech industry well you could say the same about i mean let's be real though you could say the same about asian americans oh it's finally affecting the Asian American tech bro or the Asian American finance bro. You know, like I think that's part of it is like, you know, that Asian American people have done very well in this country. A lot of them. And, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers, uh, Asian Americans really, they really do do. We do really do actually very well for ourselves in certain metrics. And that means that a lot of us have, uh, earned our white stripes, so to speak. And we find ourselves in positions of, you know, trust and authority. 
you know, of course, you know, well, all of our Asian American professional networking things will always complain about the glass ceiling and how we're not advanced enough. We're not hired enough. There's not enough Asian Americans on the board or in the C-level suites. Yes, yes, it's true. But what I'm saying is that on balance, I think Asian Americans have to a large degree integrated ourselves into American society, into American white society very well. Look at an Andrew Yang. And my question now is what do we do with that? Like we, like so much of Asian American discourse has been how that's a bad thing. And we chase whiteness too much. And we, yes, I agree with that, but we also have built up a lot of social capital over time. And to me, the question is, um, you know, as someone who followed that trend, I, it's not like I didn't spend my life doing that too, but there comes a point where you're kind of like, as an Asian American person who has, built up a certain amount of equity and credibility in this society. What do you do with it now? You know, what do you do with it? Because all I see is a lot more of uh, kissing the brass ring and trying for us to be, because I've had so many conversations with people who are like in private, like people DM me or whatever, because I get mad about something on Twitter and someone with a blue check or something will tell me like, Hey, 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 look, 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 just calm down. Look, this is, this is the game. This is the game. You gotta play the game. We got to get these center left white people to trust us, to make us think that, you know, we can be trusted. And that's, and I'm like, the, the game never ends. Like you're just building up your stack, but you never call in the chips. And I think the big question is like, when do we call in chips? When do Asian Americans finally say enough is enough? When do we get unequivocal about race? Like Andrew Yang has been nothing but having it both ways on race, which really, as you know, and we've said this a lot of times on the pod, if you don't take a side, you're siding with power because power doesn't need you to support it. It just needs you to get out of the way, right? So I think within Andrew Yang, you're seeing Asian Americans play this role of being um, being tricky, like being having both ways with it. And in, in the end, serving a very conservative function in America. And I don't think in it, like when will an Andrew Yang take all the political capital he's built up as millions of followers his huge donors list, his credibility within the Democratic Party, which is probably fairly substantial for a guy that has no political experience. Well, is he okay. going to actually like use like connect with his non-white identity and properly call in the chips on racial problems in America? I don't think he will. And I think that's a problem. I think that's where Asian Americans fail. Um Sorry, Diane, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just, um, I don't know if those chips, I don't know if he necessarily has those chips to call in because he's somebody who basically clawed his way up, right? And all those chips that he has, they're conditional on him not calling them in. And once he does, he loses them. That's the Well, then lose them. No, no, no. Well, then lose them then. Because like, mm -hmm. like, if, if that's all he cares about, right. then there's no point to the game because there's no, he doesn't have any moral quality to him. There's no, he, he doesn't stand for anything. So why would I fucking vote for this guy? Why would I support this fucking guy? He doesn't deserve his chips. I would love to see, like, that's, I want to see someone lose their chips. I want to see someone go all in and lose it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For the do the right thing. He won't do it. He won't do it. He's always having it both ways. You know, and I see so many Asian American people supporting him because he's Asian. And I'm like, but why? Like, what what good is he going to do for anyone? You know, and, and there's we have these like harebrained theories that, well, 
and it's always this very incremental incrementalist notion that well if we have just one more asian person there if we have just one more asian guy you know that can win the trust of white people maybe what like you know like that's really the thinking at that point are you actually asian anymore that's the thing just because you look like biologically yes yeah yeah, yeah, but (laughs) no (laughs) otherwise like the further up you go the more you have to lose yeah no I mean, not exactly. not the more you have to lose, but the more you have to lose to get up there. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at Andrew Yang's level, he's just a straw man, essentially. I think Asian Americans we play everything too close. We're, we're we're just way too. We feel way too precarious. Like we're just never willing to take the risk. I mean, when we say take risks, you know, we always mean like. Oh, are you going to put in for that next promotion? You know, or, oh, are you going to have that meeting with that VC? Like, you know, that's risk that we talk about, but never really take a risk in terms of like, are you like finally going to say what you fucking mean? Are you finally going to stand up for what you feel? There's also survivorship bias, right? The people Mm -hmm. with the biggest platforms, they are the sellouts. And you just, you don't see the Asian Americans who have called in their chips or who have never played the game to begin with like would you would you put grace lee boggs in andrew yang's category no i mean they're qualitatively different people so like you you can't say like asian americans they need to do this like clearly there's people i mean like clearly there's people who are like this and they're more up there or whatever Right. Okay, but then, but but okay, there's survivorship bias. But then we need to stop. We need to support people who will do that. Like mm-hmm. so many people threw their support behind him, simply because he's an Asian guy, and they were really, you know, like, and we, you know, who I'm talking about. Yeah. Like there are people we warned them about this. We we're like, we I, we've paid attention to him. Sorry, Emily. I know we're talking about. I don't know how we got to start talking about <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> I I really apologize. This has nothing to do with the article. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I, what I'm saying is like, Diana, yes, there's survivorship bias. And it's like, how did this jackass get to where he is? But like, on the other hand, we won't stop supporting these people because I think that by and large, Asian Americans don't look for this in, we, we're not looking for people to do that. We're not looking for an Asian person to go do that. We're looking for, um, cover, you know, we're looking for, for prominent Asian Americans to buy us cover so that we're not further targeted we're not further victimized i can relate i'm not saying that's a bad thing i mean i can relate to and i can sympathize with you know the desire for a lot of asian americans to hopefully have prominent asian americans um normalize us so that we don't become we don't remain uh marginalized and victimized by racism that's a totally normal legit you know yeah yeah yeah. um, i mean i i do agree with you there that i think a lot of the uh pointing fingers at immigrants or the anti-blackness or whatever it you know white aspirationalism it is out of fear and i think that you need radical self-love to counter that like i I know it sounds all woo woo but like (laughs) (laughs) you know because if you are in that state of fear you know you've probably suffered a lot of trauma and you probably feel still that you're in a very precarious situation and it is true that is true in america but if you don't give a fuck about that right like just if you love yourself if you can just carry your wholeness of being Mm 
then who the fuck cares what this other what these white people do to you who the fuck cares what the government does to you you can fucking just go to asia and it's fucking better there anyway that's that's the mental shift that i think a lot of asians make what you're talking about you know that asian american mentality is is just to go from a state of fear and scarcity to a, a psychological state of safety and self-love and i also think i'm not sure how much of it is completely fear but i do think it takes a lot of courage to i think it does take a lot of courage to go against what seems like a mainstream um defining your dreams by whiteness um And I think courage comes from having clarity on what is right and wrong, like what you think society should be and should not be. And I think actually there isn't a lot of clarity on that. Um, Well, if you can't get it from the mainstream, then get it where you can find it, you know, like get it from black radicals, get it from Chinese culture, get it outside of whiteness. Yes. And find what you yeah and it's like it's about self-sufficiency you know like you're not a victim you're not helpless you're not a child you can go out and just fucking get what you need for yourself so just take those steps to do that yeah the you know it it, there is a silver lining here i think um just to uh i guess What's the policy now, Diane? Do we just keep going if it's a good conversation? Or are we supposed to like li- no, bring it within every? Maybe <laughs> like, I mean, I, you're <laughs> uh, three hours was your. That was a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, We're, it was, a, it was actually a, it was actually a I... podcast that we had with um, Andre Domis and. Uh, Adam Hudson and we were talking about black radical traditions. Oh, nice. and we went on for three hours. Yeah, that was a great and, episode. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it, that, that was the thing. I mean, like, Emily, I think what you're saying, when I said it made a lot of sense to me, it's because, you know, um, you know, when I first, like, I never really cared about Asian American this or that at all. I mean, I took Asian American studies class, but everyone yeah. did. Um, but I didn't really care about it in college. I was really focused on just, like, doing my thing and hoping and getting, you know, typical shit, getting a job, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh it wasn't really till like my later adulthood where, you know, I was starting getting very politically antsy about like yeah. Trump and stuff. And I noticed uh, that Asian Americans were not being silent about this. They were very, being very loud about it, but in anonymous social media like Reddit, you know, and they were loud about a lot of other things on social on Reddit, you know, and not all good, but. What I found was that, one, I understood what they were saying, but number two, that it was very self-contained and it was very self-pitying. It was very like, why do Asian guys suffer from all fronts, whereas nobody else does, and even black dudes have, you know, like this. And, you know, I a lot of what we took away from that was, let's put that to the test. Let's talk to black people and see what they think about this. And I remember uh, one of our friends um, told us that um, reading Frank Chin was an eye opener for him as a black man. That, that Frank Chin had talked about things like racist love that he had never thought about, but had explained a lot of things that was happening within the black 
discourse, social justice discourse that was fragmenting the discourse in the way that was being described by Frank Chin. And that, uh, that, you know, and he had gone on to, to pot about it and to talk about it and stuff. And from there, I started realizing that like a lot of the things that people online, Asians online think are very unique to Asians like the way we suffer, the way we're targeted, the way we are divided, all this stuff, the way our cultures are disrespected is just from the same playbook that they'll use against black people or any other group that they want to subjugate. And it's shocking how similar those experiences are. And it's also shocking to me now in hindsight how little trust there was that this was happening how for some reason, like we really want to own our suffering. Like our suffering is gotta be ours. It's unique. No one understands it. No one gets it because I think, you know, it, and it goes to what you're saying, Emily, I think in the beginning when you were saying, you know, you didn't, you don't want to see yourself just as this victim, which is what the Asian American sort of canon kind of pushes on us. Because if you see yourself solely as victim, then you feel a sort of ownership over that identity. Right. Your identity now becomes a victim identity and you want to own that and no one else gets to access it. No one else has suffered mm -hmm. like me. No one else has experienced the things I've experienced. And that's exactly the opposite of what someone like James Baldwin said. Remember in that famous quote about how you connect to other people through your suffering. And I was like, this is so plainly obvious to me now, but it wasn't obvious, I think, until I started just talking to people, you know, and, and I think that's why what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, you want to understand yourself as a non-white person in America, read what non-white people say, like black people, <laughs> you know, like it'll explain a lot of stuff uh, in ways that you don't need to recreate the wheel. I think like we recreated the wheel too much and like, we could have just read, yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, uh, you know, and, and um, God, where am I going with this? Well, uh, I yeah, I'm just trying to back up what you're saying. I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, Emily, uh, because of that. Yeah, and I love I I love that Baldwin quote you you just yeah, mentioned it's a great because quote. so simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where yeah, and where he says he's like you think your pain is so special, and then you read and you realize that actually pain is pain and suffering is what connects you to humanity, and you're not so special after all. Um, yeah. I think part of it is there's just such there's such precious little that Asian Americans can even own period as yeah. an identity that they're just they're taking these victim scraps you know that's all <laughs> that's but all that, they see, get. That, that, that's that's a whole see this is the hard part about this Diana is like Every little thing like we you say, I feel like we should do another three hour fucking podcast. <laughs> like right there, like what you said right there to me is like, you know, a whole thing. Like it's like, what do you mean own? Like why why do we feel the need to like own our culture? You know what I mean? Like there's such this feeling of proprietary ownership of culture and it really does I think it's not our fault it's, because it's I think it's a commodification again. Yeah, our culture and our humanity is commodified. And uh, appropriated as a commodity, the values taken from us. Someone else makes money off of like you know our something in our culture, whatever. But that results, I think, the bad part of that is not just that we didn't make the money. I think a lot of Asian Americans are like, I should have made the money, you know. Like, but I think we don't go deeper to be like, 
well, what are the psychological effects it has on people when we are made to think that way? You know, like when we're when that's done to us, I don't think it's very positive. I think it's like kind of what you said. We get extremely sensitive about and and proprietary over our identities uh, because we feel like everything's going to be taken away from us. You know, like that is the culture of scarcity. And um, sorry, my phone just rang. Uh, that's the culture of scarcity, I think, that I think we need to let go of. And I think a lot of the freaking out over whether someone has, white people have stolen our culture, whether they are appropriating something that rightfully be- belongs to us or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing this out there. I think that's an emanation of a kind of traumatized and um, what's the word? Uh, paranoid identity. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like you talk to someone from China who doesn't have this being done to them and they don't know what the fuck they're t- you're talking about. They're not, a, you know, they don't, they have very different reactions to this notion of cultural appropriation than yeah. Chinese Americans. And I think you're right. It is because of, the, of, I think of, I think we're, I think we've been victimized into it or, de- or deprived into that mentality. So Sorry, that's a, that's a whole other fucking three-hour podcast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes also back to what Dan was saying earlier about, like, your human worth. And I think sometimes some of this comes from, like, I honestly think some of this sometimes comes from the, whether you want to call it the Asian-American canon or the classes you take, but you're taught that your worth comes from being a victim or your oppression versus your worth coming from, like, your the way you overcome struggle or the way you define yourself by certain principles that allows you to unite with say like the black community against white supremacy and towards like actual freedom for all people or for peace and things like that um and I think that that has always been a huge tragedy for me it's just because I've also I, I think I used to take a lot of I used to get a lot of human worth and maybe this is what identity is, but at least used to get a lot of human worth from being a victim. And I said that before, Um, but it's more of a trap than any way of empowering yourself to participate in bettering the world Um, and connecting with other people too. And I think back to the question of what's, what is the role of Asian Americans? I think there's a choice that will have to be made, especially as, there seems to be more like hostility towards China, um, especially with the 2020 elections coming up. I think China is going to be the huge topic of the elections. Um, I think Asian Americans will have to make a choice. They will have to say, I'm with the West, or they'll have to say, I don't think China is actually the enemy. Like, I don't get why Biden and Trump are arguing about, like, why they're both trying to be in a battle of arguing who can demonize China better. Um, yeah. And there's, a, and I you think know, that choice is also to be with the West or not is also a choice of, are you with the black radical tradition? Are you with these freedom struggles and the legacy that has or not? I think that it's a choice between people and things. Because the choice to um, be anti-China, pro-America, rah rah rah, that's the choice for material. That's the choice you make of materialism, and um, like maybe people aren't necessarily aware 
or they don't care of what they're losing, but that is what they're losing. Um, it actually kind of reminds me when you said that, Emily, of these conversations that I would have with new um, Asian comedians. Like everybody that I talk to is just like, oh, you know, I want to be successful in this, but I don't want to do these racist jokes, you know, and sell out. Like, and I think that the only way or like it, it would be hard to do both. And I just tell people at this point, it's like, look, if you want to make money, then, you know, that's the decision that you're making. And if you want to stand by like whatever principles you have and say what you think needs to be said, like you need to decide on that. But it is just just act like it is a bifurcation right now. Just act like it's either one or the other right now and make a decision on what you really stand by, like what your values are and just be like, be honest, but be okay with whatever, whatever is at the core of your, your being and like your values and your needs. Cause as long as you're honest with yourself, like, you know, like those are your choices and I can't make them for you and I can't change the world for you. But you got to make that choice for yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to live with yourself. I, I think that there is uh, this will be my final thought. How about that? <laughs> um, I I think, Emily, what you're asking, uh, we've asked it a few times on this pod. And I think it's, an, it's such an important question because, you know, in a way, it's like a lot of people in my generation, uh, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, always like we got everything we asked for because like we were always worried that we were irrelevant. We were unseen, you know, nobody sees me. I don't feel seen. I want more representation. Well, like we got all the visibility that we've ever asked for now, you know, just not the good kind. You mean with coronavirus? <laughs> with coronavirus and with all that shit. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for. We got what we wished for. And I think Though with that comes, at for me personally as a Chinese American, I feel like, you know, this ain't, this isn't about me, you know, and whether I can live my life unmolested by racism in America, right? Like, I will find a way to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to trust uh, some white people to fix that for me. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to survive my way, right? But what I'm worried about is that... You know, I see the ways because most Americans can't perceive this because they don't care, but like they're just straight up lying about China. They're just straight up demonizing China and they're scapegoating China. And it lines up with a lot of things that people have said about fascism and how it works, why we need the foreign external enemy, why we need to paint all evils to, you know, why is it that? Bannon and Trump or whatever and Pompeo are so goddamn xenophobic. Are they really that racist against Chinese? You know, the fucked up part is I don't think they are. I don't actually think they like despise Chinese people. I think that their xenophobia is part of a political formula, which makes it even more dangerous. And I think as a Chinese American, I am starting to witness this. Like I'm starting to see the pattern here and that, you know, the natural reaction of a country like America, a power mad country um at least the leaders are uh 
this country will do whatever it takes to hold on to power, including starting a fucking world war. You know, and I think that they are actively trying to start a war with China. I mean, I really do believe that um, in some way. You know, they're looking for China to be the aggressor so that we can just say we're defending ourselves. But I think we're doing everything in our power to escalate, a, you know, what sh- into a very, very dangerous situation. And I think as a Chinese American, I feel like I'm a little bit more sensitive to that happening, you know, and it's like. I feel like my early warning signals got triggered or whatever, but it's not like I'm the only one that has said this a lot. A lot more people are saying this now, you know, so I feel validated more and more every day. Uh, but I don't know. I guess the role of the Asian American is like to not play along. Cause I think a lot of Asian Americans are enlisted to, uh, to launder this attempt, you know, a lot of Asian faces, like we have more credibility to come out and say bad shit about China because we have Chinese faces. So if we do that, we're giving them even more reason to believe that this is the right thing to do. And it's not the right thing to do. Not for China, not for America, not for anybody. You know, I think that's a huge responsibility. Number one is to do no harm and to not go around, um, you know, the way that a Gordon Chang does, or, you know, these people um, uh, using their, Chinese names and their Chinese faces um, to land paying guest spots on Fox News uh, to escalate tensions so that they can have a semblance of a fucking media career. Like, don't do that. You know, like, don't do that. And I think you're already doing something, (laughs) you know. Uh, But then moreover, I think we need people, um, Emily, like you, who are not just refraining from doing that but actively saying what needs to be said, uh, which that is supposed to suppress. You know, they're supposed to suppress the idea that actually China is a pretty vibrant country with a lot of like intelligent ideas and a really intelligent leadership that is in many ways much more capable than America. And we should be learning from China, not lecturing them or threatening them. Uh, You know, I think there's a huge amount of responsibility there. So... That's why I was really taken by your, you know, by your article. I think a lot of people uh, were similarly um, reacting to it the way I was, the way Diana was, because it's true. Uh, you know, it's not, it's, we react to it because it's true. It, it's not reacting to it because of some personal bias. Uh, I'm pro-communist or I'm pro-China or whatever. I'm reacting to it because it's true. And, um, you know, I think, I think um, that was a huge act of responsibility was for you to, to write the fucking thing. <laughs> so yeah. uh, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, my reaction, um, it was very ris- visceral and very profound. And very few things impact me in <laughs> that way. <laughs> wow, the highest compliment then from you. Yeah. It really is because not only is it a huge responsibility, um, but it's uh, it's not just a taboo. You know, taboo doesn't do that justice. It's it's a very dangerous idea that you're putting out there in the U.S. Um, it's really, I think, it's probably the most dangerous thing for somebody to say right now. And I know that even if I have thought these things my whole life and I agreed with you my whole life, 
I will probably never have the courage to write what you did. So um, just just doing that on its own, like I think you're doing a lot more than what most people are. Um, it's it's a really it's gonna be a really hard time for all Asian Americans, especially Chinese Americans, because you can't really go back to China either. You know, like you're an American now; they're not gonna accept you. So there's not really any place that you can go that's gonna be politically neutral. And if things escalate, like it's going to be very dangerous in the next twenty years. I, I think that. Um, and this is my final thought. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but I think that if you really want to live, you have to let go of your fear of losing money and of death. Right. You have to overcome your fear of death and nope, just assume you're going to get killed for doing what you truly care about. Just and then do that thing. That's that's a pretty high standard. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just don't do terrible shit. Diana's like, just be prepared to die. I was like, damn. Diana. I think I'm in Diana's boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn. Okay. Wow. Awesome. Um, no, I think what you both said is a beautiful end. Like, I, I honestly don't think, I don't think I could encapsulate it better than you guys just did. <laughs> Well, you you you, you yeah, wrote you it. You wrote it. Clearly, can. That's why we asked you to come on the pod. No, it means a lot hearing that from you guys. Like I said, I I've been most shocked that the very first people who resonated with the article was not necessarily people in social justice spaces that I had known in my past, but instead were people from my hometown who would see themselves as apolitical. And that they were just Chinese Americans like me. Um, and that they're, even if it's not, again, in the same language, they're also feeling something. Um, reaching a point in their lives where they're like, I feel unhappy with a certain unconscious training um, of being in this country of who I should be and what I should not be, which is I should not be Chinese. And that has actually been the most interesting to me. Um, yeah, because I think that's a liberating totally. feeling. I think I think that's an, that, that that's the that's the advantage in a way. Like it kind of feels like a disadvantage, you know? Like oh my god, they're coming after the Chinese. <laughs> Why am I Chinese? This fucking sucks. But you know, in a way, I think it is actually, uh, you know, it's almost like a head start. You know, it's like. Um, yeah, this is the fucking society you live in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you cannot excuse. You can't overlook this anymore. It's like forcing. Yeah. You know, it's like um, there's the like Diana. You said this before, right? Like, there are some sometimes some certain certain sorts of mental or physical pain that is actually very important because it's a sign that you should not be overlooking something. Like something is happening yeah. here, and your body's like, dude, you got to pay attention to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that pain, while it's terrible, is the thing that saves your life. Yeah. In the end. You know what I mean? So, you know, and I think like maybe that's one way for a lot of, you know, people who res- what, or what the article's doing. It's like calling attention to this pain that they feel 
to say, oh, wait, I actually have to pay attention to this. This, I, this is not something I should suppress anymore. Like, I got to really understand the diagnosis of what this pain started trying to tell me. And that's what the article, I think, was helping to do was to say that, no, you, you don't just don't just put on. What did Andrew Yang say? Put on a UCLA shirt and, uh, <laughs> you know, join the military. Yeah. Do you know. Yeah. Join the military was his, 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 put on a UCLA shirt and join the military is his, his, his um, quackery, right? I think that that's irresponsible and that we need an article that actually explains really what's going on um, and why that, what that pain is signifying, you know, and, and, and in a way, if you get that, if you feel it and then you are someone it, you know, we, there, there's an explanation out there as to what that pain means. You're, it might save your life in many ways. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an early wake-up call. I think a lot of other people are suffering the same problem, but they don't know it. Yeah. You know, and it might be too late for them when they finally understand what's really going on in America. And, uh, you know... As a Chinese American, I'm like, here's our opportunity to finally wake the fuck up. You know, coronavirus, kung flu, all this stuff. Like, if that's not making you think, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you're wasting an opportunity. So, you know, I don't know. Sorry, I had promised the last thought. Uh, <laughs> My final question is actually, um, how old are you guys actually? <laughs> Oh, I'm 41, turning 42 oh, okay. this year. When you're, I just turned, yeah, go ahead. I just turned 34. Oh, okay, when you when you're like, I'm way older. I thought you were like, I'm 65, and I thought. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah, I'm 65 years old. He is in spirit. <laughs> um, you have a great yeah. podcasting yeah. voice, though, teen. Oh, thank I, you. yeah, yeah. I, it's, he is a voice for radio. Yeah. I, I have a face for va- for radio. Is what oh, this is. no. <laughs> That's not true. No, I've seen true. your face. It's not bad. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Like, I've seen him. It's okay. <laughs> if I say any more than not it's bad, right. my husband will get mad at me. So. <laughs> it's okay. You're, you're fine. You're fine. Um, all right. Um, you, know, you know, the funny thing is that we didn't get to... Some of the things I actually wanted to talk about. I, I actually wanted to talk about, you know, like how as a trans American you can deal. I mean, maybe we're heading there, but like I mean, maybe we could do another pod. <laughs> yeah, point. we like, should totally do another pod. We should. We should just continue this because I think I wanted to do a pod originally about, you know, how to navigate all of this or how to process all of this anti-China China stuff as a Chinese American. Like, how do you just deal day to day. I don't think it's that easy to deal. Um, I was going to talk. We were, I, I figured we would talk about that, but I think that's you know, good for another pod. About. Yeah, that would be great for another yeah. pod. Um, so yeah, obviously there's a lot to talk about here. Um, so should we, uh, should we wrap it up? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Um, Emily, is there uh, a place that people should like find you on like social media or online or anything or or do you like to keep a low profile? Um, I'm pretty low profile just I mean, I don't really have mm. social media to be honest. But I do think mm, people, I mean, people should definitely um 
there will always be more issues. There's an issue coming out for the Organization for Positive Peace, which people can find at forpositivepeace.org. But also every Saturday, um, this organization in Philadelphia based in North Philly in the Black community, the Saturday Free School, they meet every Saturday. And especially right now, usually we meet in person, but um, with coronavirus, we meet online every Saturday morning. um, And you can find them on Facebook, Saturday Free School at Facebook. Um, and yeah, and every Saturday we're talking about things about what's happening with the rise of China, um, what will happen with the elections in, in relation to China, what's happening with the virus and unemployment at such high rates, um, how this is not just an economic crisis, it's also a moral crisis that is both a challenge and a time of great uncertainty, but also possibly an opportunity for change. Um, and so people should definitely check out the Saturday Free School. That sounds great. I'd, I'd, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, all right. Um, so that is uh, the uh, two-hour Escape from Planet pod for this week. <laughs> um, uh, thanks again, Emily, for joining us. Diana, I guess we should continue this uh, soon. I think there's a lot more to talk about. Um, and we'll have links to all that as well as the article, which you should definitely read. Uh, there's absolutely no excuse to read it now. Um, you'll find the show notes. Thank you okay. for having thanks. me. Anytime. Oh, thanks for coming up. Bye. Bye. Bye.